Amen. Well, we are moving right along here in the uh, book of Thessalonians, and today we reach a new section, new context in the letter having to do with many of the practical matters that Paul wants to address with this church. And in giving us this, uh, Paul's practical theology really becomes apparent. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote quite a bit on practical theology. Uh, Paul is known, of course, for writing the book of Romans, greatest letter ever written, greatest theological treatise ever written. Uh, The book of Romans is rich in its uh, doctrine of justification, in its doctrine of election, in its doctrine of propitiation, as we talked about today for Lord's Supper, but it's also full of practical theology. All of his letters are full of practical theology, and that's not to be uh, missed, because in the context of Paul's letters, he gives us a theology for the church. He gives us instructions on church government, but he also deals with things like marriage and singleness and uh, divorce, and he talks about family and child rearing. He speaks on issues of finances, social norms in the church. He talks about church and state issues, and of course, everything dealing with personal piety. The Apostle Paul just writes voluminously on practical theology, so I really encourage you guys to to be looking for that in his letters. And here, this is no different. The Apostle Paul is going to begin uh, talking about various aspects of practical theology, but he begins with the church. He begins with talking about the relationship within the church that is known as the relationship between the pastor and the membership or the shepherd and the sheep, the over, the under relationship that should exist there. And uh, I just want to read this section to us again and then focus on three issues that I see that I can discern from this text. Again, verse 12 says, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, many of you can be thinking, well, this is a great sermon for Pastor Emilio because he's a pastor, and so here he's going to be you know, directing us to highly esteem him. And you know, there's a book written on this. It's called Putting Pastors in Their Place. And uh, that book was written specifically so that pastors don't shy away from their authority, from their role, from their office, because we tend to do that because it's, it sounds sort of self-aggrandizing and self-seeking. But in the midst of it, what you find is this is really a, a call to the shepherds as much as it is to the sheep, to a specific quality of life, to a certain standard of ecclesiology that we all have to take Uh, very serious. And uh, the first thing, of course, that we see from this text is that the church of Thessalonica, so every church really, but the church is being called, number one, to appreciate the role of pastoral ministry, the role, the function, the purpose of what that has in our lives. And look at, you can even tell just from the way that Paul opens these instructions that he, he's sort of aiming at a certain attitude, a certain demeanor, a certain tone. Uh, he has a certain manner that he wants to approach and broach the subject that he does because he uses a very polite appeal. He says, brethren, we, we, we request of you. He could have easily said, we command of you, or we point out to you, or we instruct you, or we direct you to do this. But no, he, he uses this word here, request, Uh, to sort of set the tone 
that everything that deals with this relationship of shepherd and sheep is to be done with a certain manner, a certain etiquette. It's to be done with a certain maturity in view. And that maturity can be seen in the affection that Paul had for his people. That's reinforced by the use of the term brethren. First and foremost, the sheep are part of the family of God. And the shepherd and the sheep, that is the way the relationship should go. It is a familial relationship. It was Richard Baxter in his uh, earth-shattering book, The Reformed Pastor, a book that has actually discouraged many people from pursuing pastoral ministry just simply because of the gravity of the office. Um, matter of fact, I had a friend come up to me telling me that it was this book that caused him to uh, take a step back from pursuing pastoral ministry. He just saw that he fell so utterly short. And we all do, and we all, even the Apostle Paul himself, talking about that Second Corinthians chapter 3, who is adequate for these things? Well, God makes us adequate, not ourselves. But it was Baxter who said, the whole of our pastoral ministry must be carried on in the tender love for our people. Now, look at the letter. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Paul exhibits this love himself. He does this all over the place. The Corinthians, he tells them that though they have many teachers, many tutors in Christ, he says, but not so many fathers, he saw himself as the father of the church because he planted the church. And uh, that, that sort of tone is carried all over. Remember, Paul calls Timothy, my child in the faith. And uh, that familial metaphor is used all over the place. In chapter 2, verse 7, we looked at this. He says, we prove to be gentle among you. He says, as, nursing, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And what's the essence of that affection? Well, he says it right here. He says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you. What's the substance of this affection? Well, number one, imparting to you the gospel, but also imparting to you our lives because you had become very dear to us. That really captures the essence of biblical ministry. It's almost like there is no greater metaphor for pastoral ministry than these sort of paternal metaphors that Paul uses over and over again. And it also shows us the logic or the reason that he makes this appeal. He appeals to them for their good. He appeals to them as a shepherd that seeks the good of the sheep. Now what about this call, this appeal, this exhortation here? The heart of it is in the word acknowledge, or the, uh, the NASB actually uses the term appreciate. He says, appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Actually, the word here, to appreciate, is just the word oida, which means to know. To know them in a special way. Basically, you can use the word to recognize them. In other words, you have to acknowledge the office. Uh, that's, you know, that sounds elementary, but in our day and age today, in our anti-institutional, anti-church, anti-authoritarian you know, uh, sort of climate that we live in today in our individual narcissistic society, our culture is not good at recognizing authority. I mean, think about how we treat the, the, the president of the United States today on a cultural level. I mean, let's say he's the worst president on earth, but just the way that people demean the office, just the way that people ridicule him, the way that they 
you know, sort of defame him, right, and character, and sometimes it's well-deserved. But what does the Bible say that we should do with an office like a presidency of a king, a, a prime minister? Well, Paul says, honor the king. And uh, Paul spoke that in a time when the king, namely Caesar or Nero later, was persecuting the church of God. And Paul was so heavenly minded, he was so kingdom minded, that for him, an earthly king is due his earthly honor. And that's it. Because our kingdom is not of this world, we have higher priorities. But that's the thing. Christians should be men and women of dignity, men and women of honor, and we give honor to whom honor is due. And that's why he says here, appreciate, recognize, uh, esteem them. He's going to go on to talk about that. Matter of fact, this word is used by one Greek lexicon to, to speak about appreciating somebody on the basis of their merit. That's interesting. To show you the strength of this perspective in the early church, Ignatius, which was really early in the church, first couple centuries of the church. He used this word in this context. He called the church to honor God and to honor his bishop. Wow. He used the same word for the way you honor God to the way that you honor the bishop. In other words, it's a reverent honor that we ought to give for both. No, we don't honor the bishop as God or anything like that. But we have the same religious, reverential, spiritual respect for those, as Paul says here, who diligently labor among us. And in the midst of this, if we think about that lexical entry, that this word speaks about recognizing somebody on the basis of their merit. That merit is defined here as those who diligently labor among you. Isn't that interesting that the first thing that he describes the pastoral ministry with is the term labor? Those who labor among you, copios, that word literally means labor. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a fanciful word. It's not a glorious word. It's not a mystical word. It's not a super spiritual word. It's a brute fact of ministry that the person that seeks pastoral ministry, first and foremost, is seeking a workload. That's what you're asking for. You're asking for a particular workload. And as a matter of fact, the term that's used here is often translated as weariness. Uh, that word is used in John chapter 4. Remember John chapter 4? That's where, Paul, that's where Jesus goes out of his way to go through Samaria in order to encounter a particular Samaritan woman. Remember that? And he meets her at the well. And it says that after traveling from Galilee all the way to Samaria through Sychar, and actually the span of that was actually a day and a half of walking, which that's the way, you know, they didn't have Teslas back then. So, you know, Jesus walked from Galilee all the way to Samaria. And it says when he approached the, the well, he was weary. That's the same word that's used here, that the shepherd who diligently wearies himself among you uh, should be recognized, should be recognized. It speaks of emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual exhaustion. And that's a good exhaustion. One pastor said, you know, there's all sorts of vocational sweat that is offered up today. There is political sweat. There is medicinal sweat. There is exercise sweat. And he said, you know, but pastoral sweat is the sweetest sweat. 
because in a sense it is the most satisfying sweat. It is a labor that is intensive and it has all sorts of outlets. All sorts of aspects of Christian biblical ministry that comprise this labor. Let me just read to you some of the things that make for the labor that Paul's talking about. There's labor in prayer, Acts chapter 6. There's labor in discipleship, 2 Timothy chapter 2. There's labor in rigorous study and sermon preparation, 2 Timothy 2.15. There's also labor in fighting off wolves in the church, Acts chapter 20, verse 29, 1 Timothy 1.20. There's labor in stamping out sin in the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. There's labor involved in confronting error in the church, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. There's labor in combating cultural influences in the church and worldliness in the church. 1 John chapter 2, James chapter 4. There's labor in refuting heresy, Acts chapter 13. There's labor in exposing heretics directly, specifically confronting them personally, as Paul did in Acts, or excuse me, in uh, Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 2 and 2 Corinthians uh, no, no, excuse me, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, as Jesus himself was not afraid and did not shy away from naming the heretics that he hated, known as the Nicolaitans. There's all sorts of practical labor, too. There's logistical labor. Remember the Apostle Paul tells the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 4, that in the matter of giving and receiving, which literally implies the literal exchange of receipts, like, like he went on a missionary journey and he turned in receipts for his correspondence, the logistical aspects of that. See, those things get overlooked. The financial labor that's involved, the labor of a never-ceasing, seemingly always increasing schedule of a pastor, of a shepherd, Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and also in Acts chapter 4. Remember what happened in Acts, chap- excuse me, Acts chapter 6 in verse 4? Do you remember what happened there? Well, a practical need arose. You know what the need was? setting up tables, remember? And the pastors were sort of busying themselves around because the tendency of a pastor is to be the one to have to do everything himself. That's always the tendency. Instead of delegating authority, having other people serve and other people do that. And so eventually the apostle said, hey, look, we are neglecting the, the things we're supposed to be doing, like giving, us, giving ourselves over to the study of the Word of God and prayer. And therefore, we need somebody to serve in these practical areas so that we can prop up the Word of God. And that was just an effective way for them to do that. Above that, and probably most important of all, there is the labor that is involved existentially. There is a labor that is involved subjectively, meaning self-mastery, self-discipline, personal devotion, piety, and zeal, and pastoral ministry. That's a lot, isn't it? You probably got tired of me just reading that. (laughs) But that is the calling. And the would-be shepherd that wants to be a shepherd ought not be a shepherd unless you're willing to undergo that type of intensive labor and the toll that it takes not only on you but on your family, on your children, the toll that it takes on you financially, the toll that it takes on you spiritually, emotionally as a family. Uh, There's a lot there. 
The second thing, and the second reason why they ought to recognize and appreciate and acknowledge their leaders because shepherds have charge over the sheep in the Lord. You see that? He says, they diligently labor among you and they have charge over you in the Lord and they give you instructions. So the second thing is that they have a charge in the Lord. Now, that's interesting because the person who has this charge. The word literally conveys the picture that the shepherd is at the head of the church, like a representative. No, he's not the most important person, but he has the most important role. That's a fact. The reason why is because, brothers and sisters, everything stops and starts with the pastor. Everything is laid at the foot of the eldership of the church. Everything is their responsibility, and they will give an account for the church, you know, uh, generally for everything that it does. They have to determine the spiritual uh, uh, temperature of the church. They have to determine the spiritual maturity of the church. They have to determine the teaching of the church, the preaching of the church, the theological and doctrinal specificity of the church. It's their job to do that. That's why he uses this word here to be charged to do this. The word to be charged here is also a term that can speak of ruling, like a ruling elder who governs the church. That's all the job of the pastors, all the job of the elders. And therefore, he says, appreciate them, respect them. Notice also the limitation of the elder. He says, they have charge over you in the Lord. And I, I wanted to specify, because those are two different prepositions, over you and in the Lord. Two different prepositional phrases. And this prepositional phrase is important because what it does is it stresses the, not, not only the nature of pastoral ministry, but its limits. It's in the Lord. Uh, in other words, The sphere of our authority is regarding spiritual issues, church matters, theological issues, those types of things. It's the sphere of salvation. It pertains to the religious devotion of the church to the Lord. That is our focus in pastoral ministry. In other words, the pastor is not called to be your ongoing personal life coach, your personal cheerleader. That's not his calling. He's not your psychiatrist. He's not, I don't think the pastor should be the person that you go to for any sort of therapeutic counseling. I think counseling needs to be biblical. I think it needs to be from Scripture. And I, need, I think it needs to be frank. And I think it needs to be within the realm of his scope. But beyond that, I don't believe in developing a sort of a codependence upon your pastor. You can't live without him in a sense, right? No, 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 no. The whole purpose of pastoral ministry is to equip the body for what? For the work of ministry. In other words... The whole, the whole reason we preach, we teach, we labor, we counsel is to make you, in a sense, self-sufficient. To build sufficiency in the people so that you are able now to discern between good and evil. That's what pastoral ministry, truly effective pastoral ministry is about. Pastor is not your financial advisor. He's not your dietitian. He's not your doctor. I was joking earlier with Michael because we were talking and and here I was giving all sorts of medical tips and, and stuff like that. I'm like, wait a minute, this contradicts what I'm about to do. <laughs> Just some advice, but that's, uh, I'm not a doctor. Go, go see your doctor. Jesus says, if you're sick, go to the physician. But you know what I mean. What's the scope? What's the limit? Is the pastor your therapist, your cop, your politician? I don't think so. 
The pastor is also not charged to be your judge in tertiary issues. You know what I mean by that? In other words, he should not be the one to decide every point of conviction in your life or in your theology. The pastor is not the the rule of faith. He exposits the rule of faith, but he himself is not the determiner. He's not the infallible voice in the church. This is the infallible voice in the church, not the pastor. And so the pastor doesn't drink. Well, that means you can't drink. Well, the pastor doesn't, uh, I don't know, what's, he doesn't watch a certain program. He doesn't watch sports. He doesn't engage, put his children in soccer or football. Well, now you can't do that either. Well, the pastor wouldn't wear a certain type of clothing. Well, you shouldn't either. He doesn't cut his hair in a certain kind of way or to a certain length. Well, you shouldn't either. Well, no, no, no. That, see, what happens there, if we're not careful, is that that sort of gets into a very unhealthy way of pastoral ministry where the pastor all of a sudden becomes like the Holy Spirit in your life. There's a subtle, there's a subtle uh, uh, a limit here. There's a, there's a real subtle sort of, there's a, we're on a razor's edge because in one sense the pastor is, as I said, he is the head of the church. He is, the, he is at the focal point. He is the voice of, 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 that God is using. He is like the voice of God prophetically speaking to his people. There's no question about that. What does Peter say in 1 Peter? He says, those who speak, that is preach, they are to do so as the utterance of God. In other words, don't hold back. Say what God would say. That doesn't make you God, but it makes you a representative of God. Very different, guys. Very different. Notice the third basis. Not just because they have charge over you, they're watching over your souls, but thirdly, because they give you instruction. Now, what's interesting is that this word here, nutheteo, the word instruction here is where we get the word nuthetic, like nuthetic counseling, right? Nuthetic counseling is all about affecting the mind. The word here uh, is from the word, the Greek word naos, which means mind. And so this is sort of instructions for the mind, but these instructions, specifically in contexts like this and others, are dealing specifically with instructing the people as to how to avoid evil and danger. Let me give you one reference, a parallel. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This is a really well-known passage and really a good parallel because Paul uses a word that emphasizes the pastor's offering of wise and godly counsel to avoid spiritual hazards. That's the whole point. Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. In other words, there are heretics and heresy on the rise, and this church, the Ephesian, the Ephesian elders, these, these churches are in danger. They are susceptible and vulnerable to attack. And so that's the danger. And he says, and from your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to, and then he uses the word, nutheteo, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. In other words, he counseled them, he admonished them, he instructed them in such a way that they can avoid the danger of heresy. In the second letter, Paul uses the same word, so that the church will graciously admonish anyone 
who disregards the apostles' authority. Isn't that amazing? That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 4 through 15. To admonish them if they reject his writings, reject his letters, reject his commands, reject his authority, because that would be perilous for them, again, in order to avoid danger. We appreciate them. They give us instruction. That's the whole purpose. See, brothers and sisters, this is what makes for healthy pastoral relationship with the sheep. What is being magnified? What is being valued? What's being prized? It better not be the personality of the pastor, the charismatic magnetic personality or charisma of the pastor. It's not because the pastor is a such a good friend or such a friendly, you know, sort of, uh, you know, jolly kind of person, whatever you want to say. It's not because he's funny and fun. That's not what a good pastor is. It's because of their teaching. It's the word, it's because of their training, their discipleship. So turn to Colossians chapter 1. So amazing here. So amazing that this is what is so highly esteemed by the Holy Spirit to set forth as the mark of valuable, premium pastoral ministry. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. What are you doing all of this stuff for? What's the purpose? We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29, crucial. For this purpose I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works with... Why does God, why does the Spirit mightily work within pastors so that they can teach, preach, admonish their people, making them complete in Christ, which means spiritual maturity... And that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the, one of the, the sole gift the pastor has to have is it's not that you're talented, it's not that you're a good singer, it's not that you're a good uh, comedian, it's not that you're a good speaker even. A lot of times God uses good and godly and holy men who are terrible communicators, <laughs> terrible speakers, right? But at the same time, the ability to teach is the key. So that's why he said, you know, must be able to teach. Uh, we were talking earlier about Edmund Clowney. Edmund Clowney, first president of Westminster Seminary. Uh, if you've ever seen him lecture, have you ever heard his lectures? He's all over the place. You ever heard how he lectures? Just kind of like buckle your seatbelt because you don't know. He could be over here and next thing you know he's over here. But you know it's emerging from... A brilliant, brilliant mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is he the best communicator? I don't know, maybe not. But he, is he able to teach? Absolutely. Because when you're done with a Edmund Clowney lecture, you feel enlightened. You feel illuminated to the text of Scripture. When we are directing the sheep based on teaching, when pastors are teaching the, che- the sheep, preaching the sheep, admonishing the sheep, see, this gets down to the whole issue of their authority as well. As long as the pastoral ministry consists of pastors preaching and teaching and that they're calling you to that, you ought to obey. 
You ought to submit. You ought to follow their lead to make sure as long as they are not calling us to anything that obviously contradicts Scripture, but anything that is unworthy, ungodly, contrary to the progress of your sanctification. It should be your heart to submit, to follow through, to complete the process by obeying. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, you know, he, he wanted to test the church. I think this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, where he says he wanted to, he wanted to see, and actually, no, that's my, I better check, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul, and this is a worthy cross-reference, I promise, First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I wanted to put you to the test to whether or not you would be obedient in all things. Wow. How does a pastor have the authority to tell people, obey in all things? Well, because what he's calling them to is not anything that benefits him personally. It's calling them to the biblical standard. That's it. In the context, it's church discipline. But anything that relates to the biblical commands, to, the, to biblical Christianity, the heart of the sheep should be to obey, to follow through, and to complete the process by being willing. The next thing is this. Not only are they to appreciate the role of pastoral ministry, but they are to esteem the gravity of pastoral ministry as well. Go back to Thessalonians so we can see that. It says not only to... Appreciate those who diligently labor among you. They have charge over you in the Lord. He says that you esteem them. Watch the language here now, guys, because it's very specific, and he doesn't shy away from this. Talk about putting pastors in their place. He says esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Wow, tremendous, tremendous. There's something so good and so healthy and so right that we... We ought to obey in this. Why? Because the pastor is perfect, because the pastor is sinless, because the pastor has no flaws or no problems or he's never offended you or anything like that. No, no, not at all. It's because this is the ethics of the kingdom of God. That's why. It's because this is the standard that Jesus himself gave us. Because this is the commands of Scripture. Because this is good and right and holy in the sight of God. So this second exhortation, and this is the second exhortation. The first one is the word appreciate, that imperative. And now this is in another imperative, meaning a commandment, in verse 13, esteem them. And that imperative is similar to the first, but here it also reminds us of two things. It tells us how to do this and why to do this again. The first one, in a sense, deals with the manner of why we do this The other one is going to deal with the basis, as it were. It says to esteem them very highly. So the word here, esteem highly, or something like that, is the word that literally means go beyond measure. Uh, It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where there he's talking about God empowering us to live the Christian life beyond measure. He speaks of the exceeding power of God that is at work. Same word that he uses here. It's a superfluous type of esteeming. It's It's an esteeming that will define or will actually determine whether or not you have a high view of the office of an elder or a low view. Remember I told you once I, was, I went to Lowe's or something with my wife and, and you know, 
Trish and I were witnessing this young man, the cashier, and we're telling him, hey, do you go to church? Are you a Christian? This and that. He goes, oh, no, I don't go to church. I hate pastors. I thought, oh, okay. It's not like I haven't heard that before, but I was just like, well, you know, we seem to have a pretty good conversation. No, no, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I'm a pastor. <laughs> you, the kid's like, well, you know. <laughs> a lot of people do hate pastors. All it takes is for a pastor to hurt you, betray you, lose your trust. Um, all it takes is a tone. I've spoken to people in churches that pastors have wounded so severely, they don't feel like they could trust anybody ever again. Because if the wound came from the right person, it's almost like no one else can repair the wound. And yet, God in His wisdom, brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, calls us to this standard. Which means we need to deal with the hard heart issues and get back on track where we're supposed to be. Not for the sake of the pastor, but for the sake of Christ. That's why we do it. That's why we do everything that we do. I mean, do you think sheep are easy to deal with all the time? Oh, you guys are. But sometimes. I don't want to flatter you because that's sinful. We're all sinners. We all have issues. Quite frankly, without the Spirit of God in our lives, we are all quite pathetic. It is God who qualifies us for this ministry. It is God who, who, what does it say? He qualifies us to share a corporate inheritance together in the kingdom of light. He's the one that qualifies us to do this. We are not qualified. It's not anything to do with ourselves. That's why we need to esteem this office highly. And then look what it says, in love. Another qualification, I love it, because he says, appreciate those who, who, who have charge over you. And then he says, in the Lord. So they're limiting the scope of the pastor's ministry. And then here, esteem them very highly. And then in love, now specifying the sphere of that esteeming of that recognition of that respect that honor that is given it is an honor born out of love we can say it's an honor based in love born out of love through love it looks like love it results in love it's all about love it's rooted in loving motives for loving ends it is the love that is a familial love it's the love of children to a father a sister to a brother members of a family in god's household. That's what it is. And so he actually gives us two phrases here. One is in love and the other one is because of their work. The one tells us the manner of how we ought to do this again. And then the other one tells us how or why we ought to rather why we ought to do the motivation of what motivates us to love our shepherds because of their work, because of what they're called to do, obviously. Turn to Galatians chapter 4 to see a graphic example of this motivation, of this love. The practical outworking, the heart behind it, literally. Because the motivation behind why you ought to love and esteem your leaders should be born out of gratitude. In other words, we are grateful for the work. Uh, You see this in the relationship between Paul and the Galatians. This is before 
all the compromise. This is an earlier pastoral, this is an earlier uh, a missionary visitation uh, with the church. And look at what happens here. You remember this? Paul had all kinds of physical problems. All kinds. Uh, just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you go through the litany of sufferings that Paul suffered. Shipwrecked, beaten by rods, stoned, left for dead. I mean, all the things he's got. But what do you think Paul looked like after that? He didn't look like a Calvin Klein model, let me tell you. He looked like a battered, beat-up old man clinging to life. That's what he looked like. And he had all sorts of physical maladies. Some people even argue that perhaps he had uh, malaria on some of his missionary journeys that affected his eyesight. That's a theory. I don't know. It doesn't say. But we know this, that his eyesight was somewhat affected. He says, look at verse 14. This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 14. He says, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. Apparently, Paul's bodily condition was of such a nature that it was almost like loathworthy. It was almost despisable. Wow. So he says, but... You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself. Where then is the sense of blessing you had? Because remember now, the, he's referring to it as a past tense because it's now Galatian, the Galatian church is kind of sliding away from their original steadfastness here. And he says, For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Wow. What he's saying is that you went from a place of utter gratitude for my apostolic ministry to now, you know, the current compromises that ensued in Galatia. But it really shows you the heart behind it. And all of this leads us to our third and final point, and that is this, the final imperative, the final admonition. Verse, the end of verse 13, it says, live in peace with one another. Now, what's the... What's the logic behind that? Why that? Right? Is there a problem going on in Thessalonica? I don't think so. I don't think that necessarily there's a problem with it, but I think he is preventing problems from arising. So I think this is all preventative, wise counsel. And Paul knows that supremely, above all, in the church, when you think of the pastor and the, and the sheep, the shepherd and the sheep, the pastor and the members of the flock, you think about the eldership and the church, you think that the most important thing in the world is that the church is unified. And the only way that we will remain unified is if we pursue a certain quality of life, a certain standard in our church, a certain culture and a certain mindset in our church, one that is rooted in peace. Matter of fact, I say the word pursue, brothers and sisters, because I will point out to you that despise your English text, which is not going to be able to represent this, but the word peace is actually a verb. It is not a noun. He says, ere new ete, which is an imperative verb and continuous. So they are to continually do this. And so peace is an action. It is not a st- just a state of being. That makes sense, doesn't it? We have to maintain the peace of the church. See, when there's peace in the church, specifically in relationship to the leadership of the church, 
and the membership of the church, then the church will be united. Then the church's love will grow. Then the church will remain focused on the task. Oh, let me tell you, division is such a distraction from the task at hand. What is the task at hand? To make disciples. That's the task at hand. Nothing will inhibit the progress, the mission, and the holiness of the church than discord, disunity. I forgot who it was. Maybe it was Thomas Manton who said that division in the church causes apostasy outside of the church or atheism outside of the church. I I think that's right. If people look into a church and they see it all divided and bickering and backbiting and gossiping and all this stuff, who wants to be part of that? I've got enough problems out there. I don't want to come in here for that. I'm supposed to be in here to escape all of that. And so, brothers and sisters, stamp out gossip. Stamp out a divisive sort of bent. Stamp out a contrarian spirit when you're gathered together. Okay? God, and I love what one pastor said. He said, when I hear anything that sounds like it's about to be gossip, my ear goes dead. I don't want to hear it. I'm, a, I'm just dead to it. I don't want to partake of it. And uh, that's the right posture because we all know that you know, gossip can be like a sweet, you know, like a sweet delicacy if we're not careful. Uh, and that can wreak havoc throughout the church. Look with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. Listen carefully, however, to this point that I'm about to make because when peace is not actively pursued, the church runs the risk of filling up that void of virtue with the vitriol of vice. In other words, a church is never truly stagnant. You're either going forward or backwards. You're either going up or down. You're either hot or cold. And if you're lukewarm, you are displeasing to the Lord. And so, we also need to watch that we are not bystanders in the church, right? That we're not just kind of, you know, twiddling our thumbs and just kind of folding our arms, right? We're engaged. We're obeying this imperative. Pursue peace. That's what he's saying. And so the question coming back to us is, how do we do that? But we'll get to that in a minute. Look at what he says here, because nothing, nothing, I don't think there's a greater fear in the modern-day pastor than division, because division will keep you from having a good church. Division can keep you from having a thriving church, a growing church, a a church that's growing both qualitative and quantitatively. Qualitatively, people are growing spiritually in the Lord. Quantitatively, we are making many disciples. Uh, I think sometimes we can have an unhealthy view of church growth, numerical growth, because we understand the seeker-sensitive, consumer-driven mentality that everything is for church growth numerically, right? Get them in here at all costs. It's like close the back door and open the front door at all costs, right? Our church is kind of the opposite. We kind of close the front door a little bit, and then we open the back door. <laughs> it's kind of like we make it hard for you to get in, but once you're in, you know, our whole objective here is not to keep you, you know, at any, at any stake. I mean, look, I think that's where people bec- become, in a sense, covetous, idolatrous. Pastors have this idol of 
numbers and things like that. It's not just modern-day pastors. Paul feared division himself. 2 Corinthians 12.20, he says, I am afraid. Wow. He says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. And conversely, that doesn't result in nothing. Conversely, he says, that I may be found by you to be what you do not wish. In other words, he's going to come with a disciplinary tone, something they don't want. Right? He says that perhaps there is strife, jealousy, angry tempers or outbursts of wrath, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. See, those are the things, those are the toxic attitudes that will zap the life of the church. The hallmark of Christian maturity, brothers and sisters, as you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, the hallmark of Christian maturity in the church is unity. How beautiful, the psalmist says, how beautiful it is for the saints to dwell in unity. You know what unity demands? Unity demands that we lay down our rights. Unity demands that we don't always get our way. Unity demands that we're willing to overlook an offense. Unity demands that we're willing to be wronged, if that's what we need to do. Unity demands that when we are slandered, our heart is to conciliate. In other words, to reconcile with one another. That's what humility does, and that's what unity demands. We have to have that. The crucial, most important characteristic of a church growing spiritually and faithfully is not that everybody in the church is a theologian. You can have a lot of smart people in the church and the church is rotting from gossip. This is a Christ-like character that we're being called to. So in other words, the unity of the church is more important than simply the influence of the church, the reach, the platform of a church, the popularity of a church, the giftedness of the church, the talent of the church, the confessional adherence of the church. Some people think, well, if we just have the same confession, then everything will be the same. You know, sometimes confessional division is among the nastiest of the division in the church. That's no necessarily that's no necessary sign of grace. The Spirit loves unity, and He binds it in the bond of peace. I told you to turn to Ephesians chapter four. Look at what Paul says there, verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. It's almost as if, if humility and gentleness, which when I think of Jesus, probably uppermost in whatever vision comes to mind, whatever attributes, whatever virtues come to mind, I think of Jesus in His humility and His gentleness. And that's what he was, with patience. You think Jesus was patient with his disciples? Oh, man. I'd be uh, interesting to do a study of Peter and Jesus, <laughs> that relationship, how they got along. Or more, how did Jesus tolerate Peter? <laughs> That's probably a better way of saying it, right? But all the disciples. I mean, think about it. Here you are on the edge of the hardest hour of your life. You're going to lay down your life, spill your blood, and bear the wrath of God. And your disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest person in the kingdom. You imagine coming into that and going, what? What are you guys talking about? 
I'm about to go bear the cross, and you guys are sitting here elbowing each other for who's going to sit on the throne. This is absurd. And if he didn't have patience, he would have done away with them long ago. Look at what it says here. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Uh, That tolerance, by the way, is not necessarily tolerating each other's sin or sinful behavior. We shouldn't. But tolerancing any sort of differences that we may have. You know, you like Mexican, I like Italian. Okay, leave it at that. Right? You like hymns, I like contemporary. Like, why can't it be both? Why can't we learn that lesson, by the way? Anyway, tolerate one another. Tolerate our differences. Tolerate our cultural backgrounds. All of those types of things. Being diligent. Here's the key of it all. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do you contribute to that? Brothers and sisters, how do you... Remember last week we talked about one-to-one ministry? Let's go one by one. How do you individually see yourself contributing to the peace of the church, to the unity of the church? Not just avoiding division. Um, I told somebody last week that God is the God of the fringes. So you should write a book like this. No thanks. No more homework. In other words, God knows and is concerned with who's in the shadows in the church, who's in the back, who's in the fringes, who's slipping through the cracks. He cares about that. And so should we. And so how do we edify the church? The word edify just literally means to be built up. How do we build it up? How do we build up this holy temple of God to the Lord? How do we do that if we don't participate? It should start there, right? You should be dependable in the church. You should be faithful to the church. You should be willing to reach out. Go out of your way. Get out of your little clique, out of your little circle of influence. Go beyond the people that you normally fellowship with and go, you know what? I don't know that person from Adam. Let's invite them to dinner next time. See what I'm saying? Being cliquish, I mean, that's what the world does. Man. Go beyond your circle. And last of all, just in the spirit of this text, okay? Last of all, follow the lead of your elders. That's how you can build up the church. It's what we're doing. These are the ministries that we're pursuing. This is the, this is the participation we expect of you. Follow the lead. You know, I remember doing a, during our missionary trip to Africa many years ago, I remember there was a mandatory fast that was put upon our class, young men that went down there, school discipleship. And I remember the elders announced, we're going to do a mandatory fast. And this fast wasn't for a day. It was for many days. And I remember, you know, uh, some guys had a real hard time with that. <laughs> so you're like, well, shouldn't I fast? Like, because I want to fast? Why is it mandatory? I thought, you know what? And I mean, I had trouble with it too, but I did it. I lost a lot of weight. It's good weight. Anyway, but... I did it, but it just ran like, wow, we are so, we're so weak in the Western church, you know? Pentecostal churches around the world, they call for corporate fast all the time. People don't leave the church because of that. I'm not saying I'm calling for a corporate fast today, but I am saying that it just illustrates to us how hard it is to be exhorted in the Western church sometimes. How hard it is to submit to authority. And how much we want it our way or the highway. 
That is not the Spirit. I'm so glad that the Spirit of Christ was what? Not my way or the highway. His was your will be done, not mine. And if we all adopted that type of an attitude more and more in the church, I tell you what, our church would be thriving and growing the right way, with the right heart, because it would be Christ-centered. It would be Christ-like.